Like if we're gonna be followers of Jesus, like, like I think many of us would say we are, and, and you know, we're gonna bear witness to his rule and reign in this world, this is what I believe. I believe that how we utilize money and how we resist its temptations is one of the primary marks of our, of our, of our spiritual growth, our, our discipleship and our apprenticeship to Jesus. No servant can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Now this is the NIV 1984 translation and other translations will replace the word money for another word that you may be less familiar with. It's the word mammon. What's interesting about this this verse in Luke 16 is that Jesus places mammon as the primary competitor for the people of God. He's, he, he's comparing them. He's saying like, like, you want to serve God, but you also want to serve this other God. He's placing mammon as the primary competitor for the people of God. He critiques, Jesus, throughout his ministry, you read the gospels, all four gospels, he critiques a lot of other things, right? He deals with things like sexuality and pride and idolatry. He talks about those things a lot. But Jesus says that mammon is the ultimate threat because it sets itself up as a God and it promises to meet all of your needs. Well, hey, good morning again. Uh, great to be together again this Sunday. Uh, we are in week 10 of our summer teaching series called The Good Fight, uh, where we're learning and growing through the book of 1 Timothy together all summer long. Uh, how many of y'all know it's been a great series so far? Uh, I'm just giving myself some, some, some pats on the back, I guess. But uh, uh, man, it's been a good time. It's been a good summer for us growing through this book uh, together. Uh, it's been a lot of, uh, a lot of ch- uh, challenging scriptures to sort of tackle and uh, but we're coming to the end of the series. There's just a couple weeks left, which means obviously that we're coming to the end of the book of First Timothy since we're teaching through it. Um, and, uh, you know, j- just to sort of remind you, this, this book, First Timothy, it's a letter from the Apostle Paul to his young protege, his young apprentice, uh, Timothy, who is uh, a pastor in a pagan city called Ephesus. And he's tasked with pastoring these Christians in an environment that was not very welcoming to Christianity. And uh, so today we, we start the last chapter. We start 1 Timothy chapter 6, and we're going to take a look at that together. And what you'll find is that really the primary focus of the Apostle Paul in this chapter is, is to really address how Christians are to uh, view, uh, interact with, and understand money and how that affects their life. And, uh, and so that's a, you know, it's, it's a tough topic. It's, it's a tough one to, to stomach or to even read through and, and, and look at. But if you know or, or read through any of the Apostle Paul's teachings, you know that this is like a, a big thought that, that he repeats in other places where, you know, he seems to have this, this belief, this, this idea that how Christians interact with money, how they, how they view it, how they understand it is a primary mark of their spiritual growth and their apprenticeship to Jesus. And that's why we don't want to ignore it. That's why we want to, want to bring it up today. And, and so we are going to talk about money a little bit today. Um, lucky me. So uh, we're going to talk about it today. But where the anxiety is maybe rising in the room already, I, I just want to um, uh, give you a little bit of, a little piece for a second, because while we're talking about money, that's not what I want to primarily talk about, okay? Uh, we're going to talk about it, but what I want to primarily speak about today is I want to talk to you about your imagination, okay? I want to talk to you about your imagination. I want to talk to you about your vision of life. I want to talk to you about what it is that exists deep inside of you, that when you think and when you dream and when you imagine it all coming together in slow motion like a beautiful symphony and you're finally getting what you want in life, I want to ask you the question, what is it that you want and how did you come to want it? What is it that you want out of life 
And how did you come to want it? How many of y'all know that our imaginations are being recruited a million times a day? A million times a day. There are, there are so many options, there are so many ads, and they're all designed to make us feel inadequate about our life, and the inundation of this is just enormous, right? Did you know that the average American living today sees more ads in one day than the average American living 50 years ago saw in their entire life? We have seen like an exponential increase over the last 50 years in terms of advertisement, options, uh, all designed from, you know, Madison Avenue on down to make us feel inadequate about our life, that, that, there, that there should be more, that, that, uh, that, that we should acquire more, achieve more, and all, and all, all of these, these things. And, and if that's true, if that's, if that's really what's gone on over the last 50 years, I think we have to ask the question, how... How is what is going on culturally, how is it forming our imaginations about what matters in life? How is what exists in culture in terms of these, these kind of forces that are at work to, to give us more options and to put more ads in front of us and make us feel like, man, we got to have more, got to have more. How is it forming our imaginations about what matters in life? Look, I think we all understand that children need limits, that children need boundaries, that children need filters even. Right? I mean, I think we all understand that, like, it is not, it's not good for, for, for kids to have unlimited access to the internet. Are, are you with me? Like, we all know that. That's, that's a pretty obvious thing. Like, that's why we put boundaries in place, set limits, put filters in place. We don't just want them talking to anybody online on the other side of the, of, of the other computer. We don't want them just looking at any images that are out there. And so, as adults, like, we place boundaries. We place, place filters in their life to protect them because even though, even though the internet provides a lot of good, we also know that it provides a lot of, of bad, right? And, and so I, I give you that as an example because I think, I think we have to also look at this and ask ourselves, like, where's the filter around excess and money? Like, where are the boundaries around consumption and accumulation? Where our imaginations, again, our imaginations can just have a break for a bit. Where are the filters and the boundaries in our life where our imaginations can, can, can have a break? A break where our imaginations aren't just being constantly recruited to believe that the life that really matters is the life that is, that is found apart from God through our own efforts and our own, our own striving and our own achieving and our own 70-hour weeks that we want to put in and the bonuses that we receive. Like, like, like where are the boundaries and where are the checks in our life? to keep us in place, to keep us in check so that, man, we're not just pulled away to believe that the life that matters most is the life that we're able to build apart from God. And, and, I, and I think that if we aren't careful, honestly, I think that if we aren't careful, it's, it's with near certainty that, that we will be, become formed by the cultural forces around us to believe that the good life is a life of luxury and, uh, and indulgence. It's a life of excess and power and wealth all apart from God. And so this recruitment, this recruitment of our vision of life and this recruitment of our vision of success and this recruitment of our imagination about what the good life is, listen to me, it's happening every single day of your life. Did you know that? Every single day of your life. And, and most often it is a, it is a, it is a competing vision uh, and, and it's running in contrast to the vision of the kingdom of God. And so my goal today, my hope today, is to really get us to interrogate our imaginations. 
Like, like if you could interrogate your imagination this morning, that would be my goal. Your imagination about, about for you, what your vision is of a successful life. And that in doing this, that in doing this interrogation into our imaginations, like, like we would not be like the pagans who, 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 who run after, you know, we would not run after the things that the pagans run after, like Jesus says in, in, in Matthew 6, but instead we would be people who, who would just run after the kingdom of God, Right? Like, if we're going to be followers of Jesus, like, like I think many of us would say we are, and, and you know, we're going to bear witness to his rule and reign in this world, this is what I believe. I believe that how we utilize money and how we resist its temptations is one of the primary marks of our, of our, of our spiritual growth, our, our discipleship, and our apprenticeship to Jesus. And it's a big, big, big deal. It's a big, big deal. And so if you'll, if you'll just let me this morning, I want to, I want to kind of show you why I think that's, that's so important in Scripture and, and I think it'll help you way more than, than maybe you even think right now as you're listening to this. Because to be honest with you, this is like a tough topic. This is a topic that like most pastors don't want to spend a lot of time on. Because it's awkward, you know? Like I have avoided this topic so many times over the years. Uh, I just have. And uh, my primary reason is I just have a fear of being misunderstood. And you know, there's such a stigma around churches. And it's been around, you know, that man, they just want your money and all that. And like that's not what this, this is not a self-serving message, Okay. Just, just, just want you to know that. It's not a self-serving message, and um, and so we've got to be, we've got to be. Um, my, you know, my, my heart is just that you would, you wouldn't resist. You know, let me just, just kind of share some thoughts with you today. I, I think that that uh, you know, just bringing up the topic, you can, you can kind of feel even some of the tension in the room and people going, "Man, here he goes again," which, which wouldn't be true because I, I don't ever do this. So. Um, but, you know, you can kind of think that through, like, stigma and things around churches. Like, man, here, here, here the church goes again. But my challenge for you uh, would be today to not resist. Don't, don't do that today, all right? I just want you to sit back. I want you to listen. I want you to receive. I hope, you know, I really want you to believe it. But, but if you don't, if, if you're sitting there going, man, this is, this, I, don't, I don't really, really agree with that. That's all right. Just throw it away and, and, and come back next week. I promise we'll talk about something else, all right? All right. Let me let me just just give me some give me some patience, okay? Give me a little, give me give me like some room this morning to push into this area in your life and and in my life, okay? Because I'm not um, I'm not just like preaching to you. I'm preaching to me, okay? If you're taking notes this morning, how many of you know that if you get money wrong, it causes a lot of problems? How many of y'all know that? How many of y'all are like <laughs> have have like stories of this? Like you get money wrong, you have a lot of problems. Would you agree that there are a few areas in our lives that can cause more problems than money? Just a few areas, like more significant. They can cause it, like, like, like the level of pain in our lives than money can. In 1991, James Patterson and Peter Kim, they wrote the book, The Day America Told the Truth. I don't know if any of you are familiar with this, but this, this book, it was the first mass survey on mass morality ever conducted. It was what they called an unprecedented portrait of the American people by the American people. Using state-of-the-art research techniques, Patterson and Kim went way beyond superficial five-minute polls to conduct the largest survey of private morals ever taken in any country. The survey ultimately revealed shocking confessions by Americans regarding their views on many, many different topics. And one of those topics was money and wealth. I mean, there's tons of topics. And the question related to money that was asked to thousands and thousands of people in this survey was this. If you want to look at it on the screen, it was, what would you be willing to do for $10 million? 
is the question that was asked in 1991. The results were shocking. The results were shocking. 25% responded to this question by saying that they would abandon their entire family for $10 million. 25%. 23% said that they would, they would be willing to become a prostitute for a week or more for $10 million. These are, these are actual results that came back. 16% said they would give up their American citizenship for $10 million. 10% said they would withhold testimony in court, letting a murderer go free for $10 million. 7% said that they would kill a complete stranger. And 3% said that they would put their children up for adoption for $10 million. Now, some of you, it would take a lot less, right? <laughs> but... I mean, this is horrible, isn't it? Like, like it's, it's kind of humorous to read this because it's just like, what? You can't believe people would actually do this. But the way they conducted the survey was it was complete anonymity. And, and the research techniques, I mean, it just allowed people to feel like, like safe to just share exactly what they were thinking and feeling. And these are the results that came out. And this was in 1991. I mean, I mean do you think these numbers have increased at all over the last several years? Psalm chapter 62, verse 10, says, says these words. They're really, really, really good. It says, though your riches increase, do not set your heart on them. Though your riches increase, do not set your heart on them. Listen to me. The love of money can motivate any evil on the earth. There is no sin that cannot be committed for the sake of money. Like, we see this all the time. Well, how much, how much can you, pay, you want to give me? I'll do, I'll do just about anything for 10 million bucks, right? Remember, important thought for the day. If you get money wrong, it causes a lot of problems. If you get money wrong, it causes a lot of problems. This is why Jesus talked about money twice as much as really any other topic. Do you know that Jesus talked about money twice as much as he talked about heaven and hell? Jesus talked about money a lot. 16 of his 38 parables have to do with money and possessions and the importance of handling those with wisdom. In your Bible, from cover to cover, do you know that there are 500 verses that have to do with faith and prayer? I mean, that's a lot. Because those are, those are central themes to the Bible, right? Faith and prayer. So you would expect there to be hundreds of verses about them. But did you also know that in your Bible, from cover to cover, there is over 2,300 scriptures that have to do with money and possessions and wealth? It is a dominant theme of scripture. It is a dominant theme of Jesus' ministry and his teachings. Why? Why is it such a dominant theme in the Bible? Here's why if you're taking notes. It's because money is spiritual, people. Money is spiritual. It's a spiritual thing. Money is not as non-spiritual or as practical as you might think it is. And this is why Jesus said one of the most powerful truths in Scripture in Luke chapter 12, if you're taking notes, verse 34, he said these words, For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. I'll give you this scripture because you've got to know that there is nothing in the world that God wants more than your heart. There is nothing in the world that God wants more than your heart. Nothing more that he wants to possess than your heart. But look at this thought. Again, if you're taking notes, it just comes out of this, this verse. The direction of your treasure determines the direction of your heart. The direction of your treasure determines the direction of your heart. That's what Jesus is teaching here in Luke chapter 12. 
And, 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 and the primary issue behind this verse is that God knows how easy it is for things like money and wealth and possessions and accumulating all of this over time to get a hold of our heart, to get it in there and, and, and ha- have a place in our heart that, that it shouldn't have, to take a place of our life that God so desperately desires to have. There's nothing he wants more in your life than your heart. The Reverend Billy Graham once said this. He said, if a person gets their attitude towards money straight, it will help straighten out almost every other area of their life. I think that's true. I think almost every issue could be traced back to offshoots related to, to, uh, to money and the spiritual reality of it. So why is money so complicated for us? Why is this such an issue where, where like it's so personal? It's like, man, you hear, you hear me bring it up, and it's like, man, don't, don't talk to me about that. Like, or, or some of you are in here, and, and, and you're already maybe just, just thinking about stories in your life where, like, man, money has been hard. It's been challenging. Maybe there's been times where you just haven't had enough, and, and you just know like, like, like there, there's a reality to this that has been very difficult for you, very complicating for you. Or maybe you've had like more than enough, and you just haven't been sure you know, what, what role you know, God is supposed to play in that. The reason why it's so complicated is because it's spiritual. It's spiritual. And here's what I, what I believe, if you're taking notes, is that if you could begin to look at money more spiritually and less naturally, it would change your life. It just would. It would 100% change your life. It would change your life. And so we're in 1 Timothy, right? We're in 1 Timothy 6. And if you remember, like, like, like this church is, is that, that, he is, that Paul is writing to, I mean, they, they are in Ephesus. And he, he is concerned with Timothy, his young apprentice, who's pastoring this church. And, and, and he is writing to Timothy, telling him how to teach these Christians living in Ephesus, a pagan city, how, how to live for Jesus in an environment that, that man, isn't conducive to the Christian life. In, in, in an environment that isn't welcoming to their faith, in an environment where, man, living for Jesus and, and embracing the kingdom of God and its upside-down principles, like, don't, don't, don't fly well, don't go well in, in a city like this. And what Paul is saying to Timothy, is he's, what he's saying to the church, is that he has seen what can happen when people fall into the financial culture of the cult of Artemis, which, which was the, 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 the goddess that had her temple there in Ephesus. You know, that, you know that Ephesus was like a banking center? I mean, not, not unlike New York. It was like the bank. It was the third largest city in the world at the time. It, it was like a tremendous place in the world with great influence and financial influence, and it all traced back to this cult of Artemis. Paul is telling them, like, like man, there are issues around you. Be careful that these issues don't exist in the church as well. He's telling them there are, there are all of these, these issues with, with how people look at money and handle money around you in this culture. Be careful that you are not doing the same things that they are doing. And so in 1 Timothy chapter 6, starting in verse 3, I'm going to give you seven verses. This is what Paul says to Timothy. He says, If anyone teaches false doctrines and does not agree to the sound instruction of our Lord Jesus Christ and to godly teaching, he is conceited and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy interest in controversies, and quarrels about words that result in envy, strife, malicious talk, evil suspicions, and constant friction between men of corrupt mind who have been robbed of the truth and who think that godliness is a means to financial gain. It's a big thought. It's a big, it's a big thing that was going on there. I mean, essentially, like people living rightly, assuming that if I live this way, God's going to bless me. 
that godliness is a means to financial gain. He says, but godliness with contentment is great gain. Okay? This this is the difference. Godliness with contentment is great gain. He says, for we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. But if if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Yeah, I read a story this week about a lady who who, uh, was incredibly wealthy. She had like a collection of Ferraris. So, you know, it probably says something about her. Um, it just had all kinds of money. And, and in her will, she, she made it clear that she wanted to be buried in her Ferrari. She wanted them, to, wanted them to, to, to dig a big enough grave that they would put it down in there and then encase it with cement or concrete. And, and that, those were her wishes. Listen to me. We brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it, okay? Not even, not even Ferraris. It says, it says in verse 8, but if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. And here's where, here's where it gets really important to pay attention. People who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs, many sorrows. So, what's Paul really saying here? It's very important for us to understand clearly what this verse is not saying, all right? Because there's a lot, of, a lot of people who have taught these scriptures and they have not taught them well. There's, I mean, there's books that have been written about these, these verses that have not been written well. And so we want to make sure we look at these scriptures and we understand clearly what the verses are not saying. I've heard 1 Timothy 6.10 cited as saying money is evil. Have you ever heard it, heard it like that? That's not what Paul's saying here. He's not saying that money is evil. I've heard it cited as the love of money is evil, and that's not what Paul says here. Paul says that this love for money is a root of all kinds of evil. I think it's not wise to love money, but he is saying that loving money is a root of all kinds of evil. It's not the root, it's a root. He isn't saying that all of the evil in the world can be traced back to having a love for money, he, he is saying that there is a lot of evil. <laughs> that he's, saying, he's not saying all evil. He's saying there's a lot of evil, right, that can be traced back to having a love for money. He's trying to warn, warn Christians about the danger of having this love for money, but he is not saying that having a, having a lot of money is inherently evil in and of itself. So he is, to be clear, he's not rebuking Christians for being rich, Paul is warning about the desire to be rich. Listen to this thought. The desire for riches is far more dangerous than the riches themselves. It's the desire piece. The desire for riches is way more dangerous than even, than even having the riches themselves. You know, I have, I have known a lot of people over my life. Just being a pastor, I, I, I've gotten to know a lot of people over the years and met all kinds of interesting people, um, people from all different kinds of socioeconomic backgrounds. I've had, I've had really good friends who are incredibly wealthy people. And they have been some of the most generous, godly, Christ-centered people that I've ever met in my life. I've also known a lot of people who are wealthy who are not that, those things. I've had a lot of friends that I've known who, who, who are incredibly poor. They just don't have a lot, a, lot of, a lot of extra. And Man, they have been some of the most generous, godly, Christ-centered people that I've known. And I've also known a lot of people who are poor who are not those things. So it's not really about like not really, he's not really talking here about like, you know, having certain levels of wealth, you know, that, th- that those are inherently evil or wrong. He's, he's talking about the issue of the heart. He, he's talking about, about like 
this desire to, to just have more and get after it and, 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 and you know, um, just become rich. Here's what Paul is saying if you're taking notes. He's saying that loving money will motivate all kinds of evil in your life. Loving it. Wanting it. Needing it. Never having enough. It will motivate all kinds of evil in your life. And this warning in 1 Timothy 6, it's incredibly serious because, because of what he says in the rest of the verse. If, if you, if you, you know, can pull it back up maybe, um, verse 10, where he says, he says, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. He says, some people eager for money have wandered from the faith. And then they've pierced themselves with many griefs. In other words, they've gone after all of this wealth and have found out after they have, have, have you know, tried to acquire it that it's, it's caused huge problems in their life. First Timothy chapter 6, verse 17, so, so seven verses later, Paul says, Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Now here's what I think. I do not think that money is inherently bad. That having a lot of it is inherently bad. I believe access to free markets have done more to eradicate poverty around the world than, than you know, philanthropy and government aid combined. I, I, I really believe that. I also don't think that being poor is virtuous on its own, like in a vacuum. I, 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 there's not necessarily virtue in being poor in and of itself. How, however, this is what I do think. I do think that especially with where we are right now in our culture, that the distortion of money and the temptations that come from it may be the most important issue that we will ever face as Americans living in the West when it comes to our discipleship and our apprenticeship to Jesus. I think it might be the biggest issue. Think of it like this. The issue of money may be the greatest opportunity we have when it comes to proclaiming the gospel. People who have excess, people who, who are you know, living in the wealthiest place to live in the world, Christians, and, and the issue with how we deal with money, it may be one of the greatest opportunities we have when it comes to proclaiming the gospel. This idea that, that, that Christians are to, are to live differently, well, it includes how we handle money. And so think of, think of the, the opportunity for that, to how we handle money to proclaim the gospel to people. Like, that we look at it differently than most, and as a result like, of, of like, you know, us looking at it differently than most, it ends up being this prophetic witness to other people. And so, and so the idea that, that Paul's getting at, and I think the idea of, of, of Scripture we see in multiple places is just because you can doesn't mean you should. Right? And that there has to be boundaries. There has to be filters. There has to be checks in, in our life to, to, to really check the motives of our heart. Like, why are we pursuing certain things? And, 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 and listen, I, I'm not here to judge anybody. I'm here to just tell you that, that regardless of what your decisions are with your money, what, it, what is true is that, is that there has to be something about how you handle money as a Christian that is different than the way the world handles money. And it serves as a prophetic witness to people. So for instance, you have all kind of, let's say you have a lot of money and, and you, you can do something, but you choose not to. And what that does is it causes people to wonder, Hey, why, you know, it's obvious you could, why aren't you, you know? 
And, and it opens up an opportunity. We're like, well, you know, that, that's, just not, that's just not where our heart is. That's just, you know, we're trying to be led by the Lord and when it comes to our finances. We want this just to be surrendered to him. And so even though we can, we're not. It's a prophetic witness to people. They're going, man, like the, Christ, the people of God are living differently even with their money. And it, and it points them to Jesus. But like the reverse could be true also, you know, that when we handle this the same way as, 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 as really much of the world and we're in just as much debt and, and we're, we're, we're you know, causing all kinds of problems for ourselves in terms of chasing after these things in life, like it's, it is no example to the world. It is not a prophetic witness. It, it, actually, it actually makes Jesus not look very good when we can't pay our debts, all, all, of, the, all of these things. And, and so the reason why this is important to bring it up, like I said earlier, is because this is a spiritual issue. It's a spiritual issue. Jesus knew it was a spiritual issue, and he talks about it in Luke 16 when he says this. He says, no servant can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Now, this is the NIV 1984 translation, and other translations will replace the word money for another word that you may be less familiar with. It's the word mammon. Anybody familiar with that word? So other translations will say you cannot serve both God and mammon. Mammon is, is a word that we don't understand really well uh, at face value because um, it's not a word that makes a lot of sense in the English language. In theology, we, we look at that word and we call this a transliteration, meaning that there's not an English word for this. And so what, they, what the translators did is they took the original word out of the Greek and they just turned it into an English word. Right? So, so we lose context, we lose understanding for what really is this the Greek word is mammonus, and mammonus was a Syrian god who was the god of riches. He was the god of riches. So you cannot serve both God and mammon. It's, it's, it's a spiritual deal here. It's, it's referring to two different gods. You cannot serve both of them. Mammonus actually came out of um, Babylon where this word meant to sow in confusion. To sow in confusion. And for a lot of us, there is a spirit related to money that has sown in confusion. I don't know if you've ever felt this in your life. It has sown in confusion, where the spirit of mammon is in operation in our lives and we don't even know it. Wouldn't you love to get the confusion of money out of your life? What's interesting about this, ver this verse in Luke 16 is that Jesus places mammon as the primary competitor for the people of God. I mean, look at it. He's, he, he's comparing them. He's saying, like, like, you want to serve God, but you also want to serve this other God. He's placing mammon as the primary competitor for the people of God. He critiques, Jesus, throughout his ministry, you read the Gospels, all four Gospels, he critiques a lot of other things, right? He deals with things like sexuality and pride and idolatry. He talks about those things a lot. But Jesus says that mammon is the ultimate threat because it sets itself up as a God and it promises to meet all of your needs. That's why. Because it sets itself up as a God and it promises to meet all of your needs. If you're taking notes, look at this thought with me. Money is a spiritual issue because so often we trust in it rather than God. That's why it's a spiritual issue. We place our trust in it. We place our hope in it. We place our future in its hands. And you have to recognize that's a spiritual problem because it's usurping the role that God is meant to play in our life just can't be that way. Peter Kreef says this about mammon. He says, mammon is not desire as such or even desire for temp temporal possessions as such, but the immoderate desire for them. 
For it is natural to man to desire external things as means, but mammon makes them into ends, into gods, and when a creature is made into a god, it becomes a devil. And so mammon is a spirit of the devil, and it lies to you, and it says that it has this kind of power, and it has these kinds of promises, but the issue with this is that only God has the power to bless your life. The spirit of mammon, though, would like to tell you otherwise. If you place your, your hope and, and your future into it and you, you do all these things, like it will, it will make your life good. You follow its vision of the good life. The problem with that is that, is that Scripture is ob, you know, obviously clear, abundantly clear, that it is God who blesses our life. No one else. Douglas Jones, in his book, Dismissing Jesus, Really good book, by the way. He says, uh, you cannot serve both God and mammon. Jesus didn't deny that money was a God. That, God. that God even has a name, mammon. Jesus affirmed mammon as the sole serious competitor of the Trinity. Jesus understood the anti uh, antithesis or contrast between God's way and mammon's way as the most fundamental distinction in all of life and history. He didn't divide the world into left versus right or liberal versus conservative or the envious versus the entrepreneur or the Christian versus the Muslim. Jesus didn't make mammon a side temptation for a few like we do. Typical Christians tend to shrink mammon into one of uh, many small idols alongside Aphrodisian sexuality, uh, Hephaestian technology, uh, Bacchanalian passion, the Leviathan state, and others. For Jesus, mammon wasn't one idol among many equals. He singled it out as the, as the direct competitor to God. He never contrasted the idols of sexuality, of, of knowledge, or the earth in such stark opposition to God. Jesus never said you can't serve sexuality in God or knowledge in God, though these were idols too. He said you cannot serve both God and mammon. The problem is, is that many of us have habits and patterns where we have tried to do just that. And what has allowed us to kind of go down that path is just believing some lies about, about money, believing some lies about, about our wealth. And I want to just give you a few of them and just show you kind of what Scripture says. Um, but here's a lie. Having more money will make you secure. It's a lie. You're familiar with this phrase, right? Being financially secure. There is really no such thing. Uh, maybe, that, maybe that's more true now as you're, as you're looking at the markets and things, but uh, there's no, really no such thing. You didn't bring it with you, you can't take it with you. I mean, you ask, ask Steve Jobs about this. At the end of his life, when he had cancer, he reflected and he said, I have all this money and I've built all this wealth, but if I had known my life would have been ending this soon, I would have lived my life differently and handled my money differently. Why? Why would he say something like that? Steve Jobs thought that if he could accumulate all this money, right, he'd have some level of security in life. Look at Proverbs 18, 11. This is what it says. It says, the wealth of the rich is their fortified city. They imagine it a wall too high to scale. A couple key words in there I highlighted. The wealth of the rich is their fortified city. 
And they begin to imagine their wealth as a wall too high to scale. They feel that wealth puts up a wall of protection around them, that if they, they get enough of it, that they can be secure, but that simply is not true. And this is what it looks like to grab for protection from something that cannot protect you. Cannot protect you. This is why Hebrews, the author of Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5 says, keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have because God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. So we say with confidence, the Lord is my helper, I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? This is what, this is what we do. We, 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 don't, we don't put our hope in money in financial gain we we believe that like the lord is our helper it's not money that is our helper right money is not our security he is our security this is the lie that we that we think that if we just had more money we'll be way more secure secure in what secure in what i would much rather live a life where it appears on the surface i have much less but my life is surrendered to jesus and he can do with me as he wants and he can provide for me as he wants than to have all the money in the world and, and, have to, and, be, and be left responsible for taking care of myself. It's not a good place to be. Here's another lie, that the things I own define who I am. The things I own define who I am. Lots of people live with this belief under the surface that if they have more, people will love them more or they will listen to them more. You know, if I just, if I just get this, if I just get that. But Luke 12 Jesus says, beware, guard against every kind of greed. Life is not measured by how much you own. It's a good word. Guard against every kind of greed. Life is not measured by how much you own. In other words, it can't make you happy. It can't make you happy. Ecclesiastes 5.10 in the, in the New Living says, those who love money will never have enough. How meaningless to think that wealth brings true happiness. It just doesn't. Do you want to know what brings true happiness? Maybe you're curious, like, what's the secret to true happiness in life? You want to know what, who the happiest people are on the face of the planet? They are not the, they're not the wealthiest. Do you want to know who the happiest people are? Romans chapter 4, 7 and 8. It says, happy are they whose sins are forgiven, whose wrongs are pardoned, Happy is the person whom the Lord does not consider guilty. Like, this is happiness. This is, this, is, this is what it looks like to have to live the good life. This is what it looks like to, to have a, a true vision of life. This is what it looks like to have an imagination that is reordered around the kingdom of God, around, around you know, healthy pursuits in, in life right now. Like, happy are the people whose sins are forgiven. Like, I can't, believe, I can't believe what he's done for me. I can't believe what Jesus has freed me from. I can't believe what he's forgiven. I can't believe what he has set me free from. Like, like this is what true happy people are like. And I want to just remind you of that because, man, if you've gotten to a point in your life where, where like, the, the blood of Jesus spilled out for you and your sins has become something that, that, uh, uh, that is maybe in your distant past and it's not fresh for you, to just, to just, to just to like, and open yourself up again to, to, to experience like, like that love of God. Happy are the people who have experienced that. Happy are the people who have experienced this. Here's another lie. And I'm getting close. My, li my stuff belongs to me. My stuff belongs to me. This is a lie. Um, let, me just, let me just go back up here to 1 Timothy 6, 17. It says, command those who are rich in the present world not to be 
arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Um, but prior, okay, prior to that, okay, verse six, but godliness with contentment is great gain. Verse seven, for we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. Okay, important, important. We, we all understand that, right? We all understand that. So we aren't owners, we're stewards, right? We're stewards. Like, like, like we may be able to use that, that term owner, you know, um, but that doesn't mean, it's, doesn't mean it's true. We are a steward of everything we possess. We don't take it with us. There is an entitled spirit in our country, I think. There's an entitled spirit that many of us, you know, are, are influenced by where people feel that they're owed something. Look, like we are, we are stewards. We are not owners. We have to have a correct understanding of this. And when we, when we live this lie that like our stuff belongs to us, you know what it does? It, 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 it affects our hearts in ways that, that you can't even begin to imagine. Like this is not the right way to view what, what, you, what you possess. Like, like the correct way, that the truth is like everything I have belongs to God. Everything I own has been given from him to me. He has blessed my life greatly. Everything I own belongs to God. Look at 1 Chronicles 29. David praised the Lord in the presence of the whole assembly, saying, Praise be to you, O Lord, God of our Father Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. He says, Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the majesty and the splendor for everything in heaven and on earth is yours. Everything, hold on, in heaven and on earth is yours. Yours, O Lord, is the kingdom. You are exalted as head over all. Listen in verse 12. Wealth and honor come from you. You are the ruler of all things. In your hands are the strength and power to exalt and give strength to all. So everything I have belongs to God. I've got I've to live this way. I've got to live with my life like, like with having open hands. Man, God can, God can move things into my life and he can move things out of my life as he, as he chooses because I recognize that I wouldn't have it if it wasn't for him anyway. So man, if God wants to change some, some situations in my life, he can because all of my wealth comes from God. It doesn't come from me. It doesn't come, like, like even though, you, know, you, you, you might have convinced yourself that it comes from a bunch of hard work and working 90-hour weeks and getting the promotions and things like that. Listen to me. Everything you have in your life, it comes from God. It comes from God. And this mindset that my wealth and what I have comes from God, it, it changes everything. It changes everything. And so I want to I close, if you want to start making your way up, um, but not, not, not too fast. You guys can walk slowly. Um, <laughs> so how do we resist the draw towards loving money? That's the question, right? How do we, how do we resist this? How do we resist this? Because it's everywhere. How do we resist this? There's two, two major things I want to I tell you. The two major ways to resist this love for money. Number one is gratitude. And number two is generosity. It's gratitude and it's generosity. This, it's the primary way you resist this. It's the primary way you put a filter around your imagination of what the good life is. You live with great gratitude and contentment, meaning, meaning everything you have, right? You, 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 are, you are grateful to God for his goodness on your life, everything he's provided you with. You know, your, your vehicle, your, your home, your family, good health, like, like all that you have, you live with gratitude. It, it'll, it'll, it'll put a boundary in your life that will help you resist this love for money. You have gratitude to the Lord for his goodness, for providing all of your needs, 
for, for coming just at the last second and, and, and giving you everything you needed. I mean, just being a good father in your life and giving you, you good gifts like he does for his kids. Like, like, it will help you resist this draw towards loving money. Just great gratitude. Like, hey, hey this wasn't me as much as I want to think it was me. And then, it's, and then it's generosity, right? Generosity. Tithing. Giving it away. Not just building bigger barns like, like Jesus talks about where we can just store more money, store our wealth, but like the way you resist the draw towards loving money is by being very generous. Do you know that the Christians are meant to be the most generous people on the planet? This is one of the primary ways we keep ourselves from developing an unhealthy relationship with money. Kent Hughes says it like this. He says, every time I give, I declare that money does not control me. Perpetual generosity is a perpetual de-deification of money. That is a great, great thought. Take a picture. Get it tattooed on your arm. Every time I give, I declare that money does not control me, that mammon does not control me. And so we live generous lives. We have to recognize that money is a spiritual issue. It's not just a natural issue. It's not just like budget, budgets and spreadsheets. It's not just natural. It's not just, you know, ones and zeros. No, 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 no. It's, it's a spiritual issue. And there is a spirit that wants to lead you towards a life of just indulgence and pursuing everything you can imagine, living the good life. There's a spirit that wants to lead you to believe that you only live once when really that's not true. You actually live twice. There's a spirit that wants to lead you to store up treasures on earth where moth, moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But there's a spirit of God that wants to lead you to store up treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. We live differently. We handle money differently. We store up treasures in heaven. Let me just address a couple common myths, common thoughts and then I'll get you out of here. A lot of people think that tithing is an Old Testament law, and that's true, it's an Old Testament law. They were required to give 10% of everything they had. Really, really, it was, it was the way God would bless them by giving 10%. And so people can think, well, man, you know, maybe, maybe it's, it's, it doesn't matter anymore. Tithing, what it does, it communicates something very clearly. It communicates that God is first. That's what it does. So whether it's, 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 it's an Old Testament law or a New Testament law, it doesn't matter. Like money is a spiritual issue. And when we tithe, it's, this is how we, we communicate that we're putting God first. Deuteronomy 14, 23 says, the purpose of tithing is to teach you to always put God in first place in your life. That's the purpose of it. I'm not here to, to give you a specific percentage. Old Testament, it was 10%. New Testament, it was pretty much 100%. So I don't, I don't know. Maybe we'll let's meet in the middle no um just kidding i but it's it's not just an old testament law like meaning meaning it no longer has has relevance to us now it still does and this is how we put god first in our life another 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 common thought around around giving and being generous is people will say things like i can't afford can't afford to do it can't afford to be generous can't afford to tithe and just about anybody who has ever tithed will tell you that you can't afford not to Tithing is a test of our faith. Like, like a lot of people say, well, once I, once I have enough, I will. Look, look at me. This is a, it's a test of our faith. 
it pulls us out of the spirit of mammon and into the spirit of God where we say, look, even though it doesn't make sense on paper, I'm trusting you in this area of my life. This is the one area, Malachi 3, where God says, you can test him in this. Test me in this, he says. See if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and bless your life. A lot of, here's another thought. We say, we say oftentimes, well, you know, the church doesn't really need, doesn't really need my money. And yeah, maybe, maybe that's true at times. Tithing allows the church to do the work of God in our, in our community. And when I talked to you earlier about having an imagination, talking to you about your imagination of like, what does a successful life look like? Having an imagination about your vision of success and your vision of life, like, does the kingdom of God enter into that vision? When it comes to like accumulating and possessing and getting more and all that, does the kingdom of God come into that vision where you start imagining what you could do to finance the kingdom of God, what you could do to impact people around the world? Does that come into your focus? Like, like do you ever wake up just wondering, man, I wonder what I could do to impact somebody's life and to bless them in wonderful ways. You gotta start imagining what, what God could do through you for the kingdom of God. This is, this is really, really important. To not just dream about all the things that we can get out of life, but to also dream about the things that we can give to bless other people. Amen? Would you stand? I, I got something I want you to do with me. Would you stand here today? I want us to read something out loud together. I think, I think it just is good truth. It's a good way to end. It's good truth. And I, I just want you to read this um, generosity liturgy with me, okay? And... Um, and just take in like what we're saying. Because it's so, so, so healthy. Let's read this together. One, two, three. Holy Father, there is nothing I have that you have not given me. All I have and am belong to you, bought with the blood of Jesus. To spend everything on myself and to give without sacrifice is the way of the world that you cannot abide. But generosity is the way of those who call Christ their Lord, who love him with free hearts and serve him with renewed minds, who withstand the delusion of riches that chokes the word, whose hearts are in your kingdom and not in the systems of the world. I am determined to increase in generosity until it can be said that there is no needy person among us, I am determined to be trustworthy with such a little thing as money that you may trust me with true riches. Above all, I am determined to be generous because you, Father, are generous. It is the delight of your daughters and sons to share your traits and to show what you are like to all the world. Amen. 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 Mm. Would you bow your heads? If you're here today and you would just acknowledge uh, every head bowed, every eye closed, no one's watching. If you would just acknowledge, man, this has been a tough, tough area in your life to just surrender, you know, uh, to the Lord and let him have control in terms of the finances in your life and let the spirit of God lead you in this direction. And you just would like some freedom. You'd like that to not be that way. You'd like to trust God with great faith financially. You'd also like to see the blessing of God this way in your life. And, and that's you and, and, and you're feeling that heavy. Would you just lift your hand? I wanna, I wanna just pray over you today. This is you feels like it all it always just comes up there's always something going on 
Listen to me. There's a, this is a spirit, guys. There's a, you have to realize it's not just a natural thing. There's a spirit. And I address that spirit right now. I address that spirit right now. You will not any longer sow in confusion to my brothers and sisters in this room. You will no longer sow in confusion any longer to my brothers and sisters in this room. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would come and you would bring great freedom in this room for everyone on the sound of my voice. Those who are in, in debt, those who are in, in, in financial struggle or hardship, Lord, I pray for great hope over them in this place. I pray for great wisdom on how to uh, make choices to, to, to uh, uh, really follow you in a way that would bring great blessing in their life, God. I, I pray that you would free them in Jesus' name from every, every struggle, every, every issue related to this, every mindset around money, God, that is just, it's just not the way of the kingdom of God. And Lord, I pray for those in this room who have more than enough. Lord, I pray that you would speak to them as well. I pray you'd speak to them as well. I thank you that to whom much is given, much is required. I thank you that you're a good God who gives great gifts to his kids but that you, you challenge us to steward this well. And I pray for those, my brothers and sisters in this room who have been given much, Lord, that you would, you would speak clearly to them about how to steward in such a way, God, that you would be so pleased, you would be so honored by their choices, by their sacrifices, by their willingness to help those who are in need and to, to, to sow into your kingdom, God. I pray that you would just help all of us in this room to really develop a great vision for your kingdom, that we could live for something bigger than ourselves. We could live for something that outlives us on this earth. We could invest in things that live beyond the grave. We could invest in things that last for eternity. We could invest in things that help people come out of bondage, who help people come into relationship with Jesus to find the answer to the questions of their soul. And so come Holy Spirit, come wake us up to this challenge. Come wake us up to these, these problems, these issues that we have in our life when it comes to, to, to money and, and handling it in ways that, that are just causing challenges in our lives. God, come and do in us whatever you want to do. In Jesus' name, amen and amen.